Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. I am thrilled to have you here today. It feels like a really, really good day. It's inauguration day in America. My name is Laura Diaz. If you're new around here, welcome. And if you are joining us again, welcome back. It is so good to have you here today. And like I mentioned, it's inauguration day. And if you are listening to this way in the future, I hope this episode is still super impactful because we are speaking with Dr. Gretchen Goldman about what to expect from the Biden administration on climate and the environment. So a heavy, heavy title for this episode, but it feels so good to be able to say that we have expectations and we have systems in place to reasonably keep this administration accountable. There has been some lofty promises made, and I am thrilled to see us rejoin the Paris Agreement. I am thrilled to see us take climate action very seriously, aggressively decarbonize, aggressively fund renewable energy sources. There is just truly so much work to be done on the environmental front with this administration, and I am so excited to see them hit the ground running. Like I mentioned, we're joined today by Dr. Gretchen Goldman. She is a repeat guest and someone who I deeply, deeply admire. Dr. Gretchen Goldman is the research director for the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. For nearly a decade, Dr. Goldman has led research efforts at the nexus of science and policy on topics ranging from federal scientific integrity to fossil fuel energy production, climate change, environmental justice. Dr. Goldman has testified before Congress and currently serves on the 500 Women Scientists Leadership Board and the Air and Climate Public Advisory Committee for the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments. She also serves as an expert on the public health rulemaking of the California Geological Energy Management Division of the Department of Conservation. Her words and her voice have appeared in Science, Nature, The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, NPR, BBC. She is so incredibly well-respected and someone, like I mentioned, I have admired for a long time. So I am really thankful to have this platform that allows me to keep talking to her. If you'd like to hear our last episode together, Gretchen joined us in April on episode 106, focusing on public health and the public health impacts of EPA rollbacks under the Trump administration, and I'll link that episode in the show notes. Also, we do touch on the EPA today, but we explored it much more thoroughly on that episode 106 I just mentioned, and on episode 123 with Aaron Brockovich, who got into standards versus regulations and drinking water and more public health responsibilities of the federal government. So I'll link that one in the show notes, too, if you'd like to go back and listen. Today, Gretchen and I speak about what happened to environmental protection during the Trump administration, and then we start to set the scene for what we can expect from the incoming Biden administration. We discuss cabinet appointments and the specific qualifications of a few notable positions, and we also talk about barriers and how quickly certain things can or cannot be done. We also talk about policy and climate action checkpoints, looking at the Biden administration's clear commitments already to climate and environmental justice. 
It really does feel to me like a new age of America. The inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris definitely does not solve all of our problems, and I don't want you to leave this episode thinking all of the work is done. And Gretchen reminds us at the end of our conversation today that we must stay critical and remain engaged and keep advocating, but I'm just really excited about the work that is going to be done these next four years. I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, shoot my shot. If there's someone listening out there that is charged with staffing some of these agencies and departments with smart, passionate young people, please let me send you my resume. But in all seriousness, if anyone would like to get in touch, you can always do so on social media at EcoChicPodcast, and all of my links are down in the show notes if you want to get in touch. I also wanted to quickly mention something that I announced on social media, but I haven't talked about it yet on the podcast. And that is that we're starting a new segment of the podcast. We are starting a book club. I am thrilled. This will be an extra episode each month. It's not replacing one of our usual weekly episodes. And we are going to read a book as an audience and we're going to discuss it with a friend. So for our first book club, we are discussing the book Deluxe by Dana Thomas on the luxury fashion industry and the perils and the behind the scenes reporting of luxury fashion. And we are going to be chatting with Megan McSherry of Activism. I am absolutely thrilled to be reading this book. It is a cult classic sustainable fashion book, kind of describing and exposing the reason that fashion houses are the way that they are and how they manage to produce so much luxury and what's truly worth it and what's not. And this was a book that was recommended to me by Aja Barber. And she said, if you've ever been even slightly remotely interested in purchasing a designer handbag, you have got, I said that kind of strangely, handbag, but you have got to read this book. And I really trust Aja Barber and I'm really excited to be reading with Megan. So if you are interested in joining us, that is Deluxe by Dana Thomas. Try and find it secondhand. I got mine on Thrift Books and we will be tentatively reading the end of February. And I look forward to starting this new segment with you. Like I mentioned, I'm thrilled to hear your thoughts on this episode and your hopes and dreams for when it comes to the environmental protections and climate action through this next administration. I really look forward to staying abreast and actively following and participating in this incredible intersection of science and democracy. Our work is certainly not done again, but it just feels really good to be at least getting to work. So with that, let's get into our episode today with Dr. Gretchen Goldman of the Union of Concerned Scientists. I am a hot sleeper. I have sensitive skin and I am constantly waking up in the middle of the night hot, overheated. I get terrible sleep and I started to realize that my bedding might be the problem. And when we say bedding, I am someone who thinks a lot about the environment and sustainability And I get nervous when I make a major purchase like bedding, something that I'm going to be using every single day because I want to make sure that I'm choosing the most planet-friendly, smart option. So two major issues in my life, hot sleeping and how to continue being a conscious consumer. That's when I found Etitude. Etitude sheets are silky, silky soft, But they're not really made from silk. They're made from bamboo, clean bamboo lyocell. It's extremely breathable and it's a vegan fabric. And I'm all about that. It regulates your temperature to improve the quality of sleep. So it doesn't keep you too hot. It doesn't keep you too cool. 
And actually, I found Etitude almost two years ago now when I had the founders on Eco Chic. Right when the show first started, I found Etitude Sheets. I totally fell in love. I've actually ordered since two other sheet sets so that I always have them on rotation. They're genuinely the silkiest, best thing that I could be doing for my face and my hair too. And they're just delicious. I don't know how else to describe them. They are the most luxury, high-quality sheets that I could be buying, and they are really not nearly as expensive as they should be, in my personal opinion, for the quality that you're receiving. Seriously, if you want to have the best sleep of your life, you have got to try Etitude Sheets. They have an amazing 30-day risk-free trial. They even cover shipping and returns. So there's really no reason not to try their clean bamboo fabric, Etitude's luxury bedding, sleepwear, and bath range, super gentle on your skin, and super good to our planet. Etitude, soft as silk, breathable as linen, but at the price of cotton. You're going to love them. When you support our sponsors, you support our show, and right now, my listeners will get 15% off their sheet set and free shipping. Just enter ECO15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. You've got to enter that code. The only way to get 15% off your set of Etitude sheets and free shipping is to enter ECO15 at checkout. That's ECO15, E-C-O-1-5, at checkout for 15% off your Etitude order. Well, Gretchen, welcome back. I am thrilled to have you here again, and I'm excited to just dive into a lot with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me again. I would love to open up with the very broad question of what happened to the environment in the last four years? What has the Trump administration done to our environmental protections? Super heavy Uh, question. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Depends on how much time you have. But (laughs) briefly, the Trump administration essentially took a wrecking ball to all the environmental protections that we have in place. This happened, you know, across federal agencies from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to the Department of Interior's uh, role in protecting public lands to everywhere where we see uh, environment being touched. And the good news is that we have really strong laws in place and lots of ways that environmental protections are ingrained in what we do from uh, the federal down to the state and local levels, but the administration did do a lot of damage, both in undoing things that the previous administration had done to bolster protections, um, and also just weakening existing uh, laws and, and otherwise making it easier for polluters to continue to pollute and, and do less to clean up their acts. That is a wonderful summary. I think that when we talk about pollution, it's so easy to get bogged down in the idea of pollution you can see, like litter in streams. But when we talk about pollution in the Trump administration, a lot of it is also chemicals that are being dumped into the water or uh, rollbacks in terms of what we're allowing into our drinking water. And when we talk about public lands, it's so easy to get bogged down into like the national park system. But there's so many more public lands than that that could also be perhaps uh, bolstered in our renewable energy pursuits. So I think that when we talk about environmental protection, it is such a broad topic that, as I was mentioning to you before, I didn't even realize how far-reaching the pressures could be to do more in terms of climate action. So I guess the next big question that I'd love to ask is, 
for you as a scientist, as a researcher, as someone who is deep in the trenches of science and democracy, what are your hopes for the Biden administration when it comes to environmental protection? Uh, so many hopes. I, I feel like there's a lot of potential. I'm firstly just very excited to have leadership that is interested in following the mission of agencies, which, you know, you'd think would be a given that we'd have people that cared about doing what they're charged with doing. Um, but we saw under the Trump administration that, that that wasn't true for a lot of the political appointees. So I'm excited to have people that, you know, are at EPA and care about protecting public health and the environment and have uh, relevant skill sets and experience to do that. Uh, and so I think that alone will go a long way in terms of what they can actually get done. And then also just in terms of their inspiring trust and getting the agencies to uh, have higher morale and and be more ready to go and like do those things because um, we've just seen um, a lot of agencies have just taken such a hit in the last four years in terms of not having leadership that was willing to do their job. So I think that is a big way that we can get a lot more <laughs> progress. And then after that, I think I'm also really hopeful about what the Biden administration has uh, said to be their priorities, which two of their top priorities are environment related in with climate and environmental justice were two of their top four priorities named. So that's a pretty big deal. Like that means that they will walk the walk and we've already seen them start to do that with appointees. Uh, they put in place a whole climate team that has some top, top notch people that are, you know, going to be serious about, about taking on this issue and have a record of doing so. So I think that indicates to me that they're, they're really going to go for it. And I anticipate that they'll go really hard on climate, harder than uh, the Obama administration even. And, um, you know, I think we're seeing early evidence of that. You know, it's going to be hard, of course, to, to get a lot done for a variety of factors we can discuss, but I, I'm hopeful that they'll be able to make a lot of progress on that. And, and they're, Focus on environmental justice is really exciting. I think it's the biggest time that has had a national spotlight. And it's very big. They've been appointing uh, people that are experts on environmental justice. They've been, the Biden campaign had a lot of really specific ideas about how to address environmental justice across the government. And those are all things that that he could do starting on day one. And so I'm really excited for that to be a priority because historically it, those issues have always been deprioritized, hence the, the reason environmental justice is an issue. And we have these huge disparities in how people are protected or not. And so saying that they're going to address that head on and prioritize addressing racial disparities and who's exposed to pollution is such a huge um, it's such a huge deal. And I'm I'm really excited to see to see that happen across the government. Yeah, I am thrilled about the focus on environmental justice. And something you mentioned that I'm also really excited to get into with you is appointments and how the Biden administration has already been quite active and thoughtful in who they are putting in certain positions and this whole climate team that they're putting together. And I feel like there has been a lot of public discussion on appointments and a lot of public activism. We saw that with um, the Department of Interior about how how people are just really rallying around certain candidates for these appointments. So I'd love to just chat with you in general about the appointments to the Biden administration and why they are so important in the value that they're really bringing to this administration and the agenda. 
Yeah, I think he's chosen some really great people so far. I've been um, impressed. The Biden team, you know, has had, had sort of a reputation for trying to bring people together, being a little more moderate on things. And so I was curious how that would affect his picks to leadership positions. Um, you know, maybe he would choose, you know, people that were not as uh, bold on on climate and environmental issues. But that hasn't been the case. I mean, we've seen him choose really great people with great experience and, and that have bold progressive ideas on uh, climate and environmental issues. And we've seen him choose really diverse nominees and, and people that bring new perspectives to the table. And I'm really excited about that. I, I think you were alluding to, he chose Representative Deb Holland to be his Department of the Interior nominee. And that's a really big deal to have a, a Native woman in charge of the Department of Interior. So I'm really excited for some of the new potential to get these great new voices into uh, high-level positions. And I think that there's a lot of potential. Um, and I, I think we shouldn't underplay the fact that because the Senate was will now be controlled by Democrats, that means he might be able to get uh, these people into those positions sooner, which is a big help in terms of getting things done and being able to really um, move forward uh, as quickly as possible since we know there's so much to do. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to also ask you more specifically about John Kerry's position, this climate Caesar position. What does that even mean? What are you kind of expecting from Kerry out of this position? Like, yeah, what do we even expect from that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I like that he decided to choose this sort of an, an international leader and a domestic leader on climate. And he chose Kerry as his uh, international one. And and it's I'm really excited about that one because I think, you know, I'm often very focused on domestically, what are we doing about climate change? But the international piece is a huge opportunity. And a lot of that, importantly, can be done just by the presidential administration. They don't necessarily need to bring in Congress. It's not, the courts aren't involved. He can just decide to do things. And so that's a huge potential in terms of rebuilding the U.S.'s role as a leader on climate action, helping uh, other bring other countries along on that. Um, and John Kerry, of course, is very well positioned to do that job, given his experience at the State Department and in Congress and um, everything else. So I, I think that that'll be a really big opportunity to start to rebuild our international reputation on climate, starting with re-entering the Paris Agreement, but also um, so much more. So I'm excited for them to be able to hit the ground running and be able to advance a lot of the international climate work that we know is needed. Um, so that's a really big deal on for John Kerry, and that'll be neat. And then uh, he put Gina McCarthy as his domestic climate czar uh, person who uh, she was headed the EPA under Obama administration. So she can also hit the ground running and do a ton. She has a lot of experience in exactly how to do that. I think she will do a great job in, in doing a lot of work um, coordinating across agencies and with Congress and whatever else is needed uh, domestically. So I think having the two of them work together and be in positions of power on climate um, will be a big, a big way that this administration coordinates and advances on climate across all the different places. Since, as you said, it touches all kinds of agencies. It isn't, EPA has a huge role, of course, but it's not just EPA. There's lots of places we can uh, do, do climate work. I agree. I think that the value in 
recognizing that not only do we need to have someone focused domestically, someone also focused internationally, someone focused not just on the EPA, but also in energy and transportation. And there's so much that you can really improve when it comes to climate action across agencies. And something that you mentioned that I'd love to learn a little bit more about is Congress and these kind of gatekeeping measures that our democracy has to either promote or prevent certain actions from going through. So I'd love to talk a little bit about what kind of barriers exist for these climate action items that the Biden team seems to be really pushing. Yeah, there are limitations, both because of Congress and because of the courts. So I guess maybe I'd want to start with what he can do. So first, I'd say there's lots that the Biden team can do. We talked about international. Domestically, there's a lot of things that agencies can do just with their own power without needing to deal with Congress. So these are things like they can allow California to have stronger global warming emission standards. This was something that the Trump administration revoked, but that could be put back in place. And we know California having stronger policies does lead the nation and tends to drive uh, industry um, reduction in emissions in various ways. So that's a big deal. Uh, They can do a lot around around vehicle standards, energy efficiency standards at DOE. Uh, They can strengthen a lot of um, emissions rules and policies and guidance at EPA that surround power plants and other major emission sources. So there's a lot they can do just to, and these are sort of varying levels of, you know, how big of an impact it will have, but those will either drive down industry emissions or, you know, set new standards that drive innovation and otherwise um, help to focus on a lot of the climate mitigation strategies. So I think there's a lot they can do at agencies and it seems like they're ready to do that at EPA, at Department of Energy, at Interior. Oh, and around permitting of oil and gas is another big one, which happens at Department of Interior. They can decide who who can get permits to um, extract oil and gas, which of course has a big impact on global warming emissions. So those are the kinds of things that they can do. I expect they will do all those things and think of all kinds of new things that we should be doing and thinking about and other ways to just help foster our progress on those fronts. On some of the bigger things they might think about doing, they unfortunately will need Congress. These are things like if you wanted to have some comprehensive emissions reduction plan, you know, the Historically, there were attempts to get cap and trade, carbon tax kinds of proposals. So there's lots of ways that you can decide what that looks like on the policy side. But to do any sort of bigger new rule, they will need Congress. And the other challenges, given the the makeup of Congress, you know, we'll have to figure out, they'll have to get creative about what that could look like to get enough votes to be able to do things. One challenge is the filibuster in Congress, which prevents, uh, basically means you need a lot more votes than you would otherwise need to do things. And so that said that there's a way they can get some things through without needing all those extra votes if it's just uh, they can do it within uh, something called budget reconciliation. So I think there's some opportunities in there. They can only do it once a year, so they'll have to decide like whether or not climate is the priority to do it in, in different certain times. But Anyway, those are all to say there's sort of there's lots of reasons structurally that it's hard to get things through Congress, but um, I think there's a lot they can do on their own. And um, and then the other limitation I want to flag is is the courts. So given the makeup of the Supreme Court, there's a lot of potential for things that the Biden administration 
does to get shot down later in the courts, um, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to do them. But, you know, for example, this is what happened with the Obama administration's clean power plan. It got stopped in the, the courts and, and was never ultimately implemented yet. Uh, and, and, and then the Trump administration rolled it back. So, you know, there's a potential for a lot of those court battles to happen if they, if they do try to do something new and different and big through agency actions. But, you know, I think there's lots of, there's a lot of smart people thinking about this. There's a lot of ways they can think about, you know, what is the way that you can get things through the courts and what are the ways that we can do things with the existing powers that we know they have. So I'm hopeful they can make a lot of progress even with these hurdles. That is promising. I feel really good hearing this from you because like I said before we started recording, I don't know if I'm being overly optimistic about how much this new administration can get done, especially when we talk about climate action. And something that's also fascinating to me is that mentioning the administration can get a lot done without Congress and without the courts and with the powers that are already vested within them. But that also makes me think of this current administration and the Trump administration coming out of this season and and thinking about the final things they're doing to really kind of kick the environment in the gut and kick it to the curb. And I'm thinking of when you were mentioning oil and gas drilling, I'm thinking of that Arctic wildlife refuge in Alaska. I'm thinking about um, how public lands have really been threatened in the last four years. I'm thinking about the standards for emissions for vehicles. I'm thinking there's just so much that has been under fire in the last four years that there hasn't been a lot of barriers to protect. So what are we seeing happen on the way out of the Trump administration when it comes to environmental protection? This is a good question to ask because there is a lot of damage being done, even in in these final days of the Trump administration. They're doing everything they can to mess things up, weaken regulations, make it harder for Biden to enact his agenda. So we need to keep track of all those things and make sure that um, they can be corrected as necessary. And then at the same time that we're correcting all those things, we need to be, as the Biden team has said, building back better. So thinking about, you know, how do we go beyond what it was before and not just restore things to what they were previously, but also be bigger and bolder. Because at the end of the day, the Trump administration, you know, it wasted four years that we don't have on climate. You know, this was a really crucial time for us to do bigger and bolder things. And we we didn't do it. And we went the opposite direction. And that's something that we're now going to have to <laughs> figure out how to work with. And so I think that's one thing that is also going to slow them down a little because they have to spend time now correcting some of the things that the Trump team did. And and there's sort of different levels of ways that can happen. So, you know, some things they did uh, are, are quicker fixes. So a lot of the executive orders and uh, guidance changes and things that for the most part, you know, it takes time. But but on day one, President Biden can come in and, and undo some of those things or start that process fairly easily. There'll be some things, of course, that you can't take back, right? If they've issued permits to industry and they're drilling, you know, you can't you can't take that back if they're already ex- extracting things. So there's going to be some places where we lost a lot of time and, and did a lot of damage that won't be easy to undo. But I think there is um, a lot of things that they hopefully will do. A couple of things I would just note is there were a lot of things that the Trump administration did that weren't 
major headlines, but will have negative impacts on climate and the environment. For example, there's a couple of rules they did where they just changed how they were interpreting uh, existing law, and they all serve the same ultimate goal, which is weakening the emission standards that exist on cars and trucks, on industrial sources. So one that we followed really closely was uh, this thing called once in, always in guidance on major pollution sources. It was to protect people against hazardous air pollution. And they changed how you can interpret whether or not you have to meet the maximum achievable control technology. So just whether or not you have to do as much as you possibly can to reduce hazardous air pollution. So these are like cancer-causing substances like benzene and others, and they changed that. And so it means that a bunch of facilities can now emit a little more hazardous air pollution um, into the air. And, you know, on any given facility, right, this, this wouldn't necessarily have a huge impact nationally, but it's a really big deal if you are a community who lives next to that facility. And if you're a community that lives next to 10 of those facilities, you potentially have a lot more risk uh, in the air you breathe. And so there's a lot of things like that that you know, weren't major headlines under the Trump administration, but will do a lot of damage, especially for fence line communities and, and others who are disproportionately affected. So I think those those kinds of issues need to be prioritized. And I am hopeful that the Biden administration will prioritize that as they think about how to implement their environmental justice plans. I think that environmental justice is an interesting very important topic that they have attached themselves to, they being the Biden administration. And when we talk about things like air quality, I feel like there is this sense that while we are discussing environmental racism more and more and where these facilities are located and what's being allowed into the air, there's also this sense that it's very like, if you can't see it, it's not there, kind of similarly to the feeling that people have about greenhouse gas emissions, that if you can't see CO2, then it, you know, then what's the big deal? And why do people get so nervous about things like, um, I'm thinking of nuclear waste, like people see nuclear waste, and they get really upset about it. But by volume, it's so much less than something like CO2 or methane. So anyway, kind of a long run around. But I think that environmental justice is an interesting, very important topic that they've attached themselves to that might come with a lot of pushback because I don't know if it's as prominent in people's minds as things like emission standards. Yeah, it's a good point because, and that's part of the problem too, is that we we haven't prioritized it as an issue on even the data collection side. You're right, you can't see it always. And even if you can see it, it's we're not necessarily collecting the data that tells us how much of a problem it is. You know, it's sort of an underfunded area. The scientific community isn't generally very focused on it. And the federal government isn't focused on it except for a few places. And so, you know, you have a lot. We have communities that, you know, they know it's a problem. They see it. They witness the health effects that are resulting from it in the people around them and themselves. And so, you know, they know what it is and they've, in many cases, taken taken it upon themselves to collect the data and understand what they're being exposed to with the companies. But yeah, we haven't always seen that. And there's a lot of um, challenges on the science side that we just haven't addressed. And we, we could do put more funding toward understanding that and thinking about it. Um, but the way that the Clean Air Act is written is limited in terms of how it deals with environmental justice. There's almost nowhere that 
there's any legal mechanism by which you have to do something about it. So there's there's like a few places where it says, you know, if there's a disproportionate risk, then you have to do these extra controls. But for the most part, there's nothing that feeds it into um, a standard. And so that's really a problem because even if communities find something, you know, they have sort of limited options for like how they can sort of force the issue on that. And so it's sort of this interesting thing because we the way that, it's written we where we put monitors in many cases is intentionally far from sources and communities right we're trying to just get the ambient air quality as opposed to trying to find out what's measured at the fence line and what people are exposed to and so ultimately that means we end up having less data that about what communities on the front lines are exposed to and that in turn means there's there's less we can do policy wise if we don't even know what we're experiencing. So those are all sort of big structural challenges, but there's a lot more that the Biden team can do to change the way it's prioritized at agencies to, you know, try to allocate funding to places that are trying to address these issues. The Environmental Justice Office at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency was gutted under Trump. It was deprioritized and they they saw a lot less. So that's something you could rebuild that. You could reinvigorate the Advisory Committee on Environmental Justice that the agency has. And so there's a lot they can do to refocus it. And a lot with this issue, I think, is that historically and across agencies, it just tends to be backburnered. Like, well, we'll deal with this main issue. And then when we have time, we'll get to the, the environmental justice piece, which of course means it's often not addressed because we don't choose to prioritize it. So I think that's like the kind of thing that Biden can change in a lot of ways. You know, we can force agencies to better consider it, to really make sure that they're incorporating it into the decisions that they're making, that they're providing more opportunities for community input, especially from affected communities. They can do listening sessions with communities, which can lead to to more action and prioritization of it. So I think there's a lot of things like that, that kind of low-hanging fruit that there's, there's no reason they can't do. Right. And something that's interesting you touched on is that When we talk about agencies being gutted under the Trump administration and areas where the Biden administration can really put people, for a lot of these environmental groups, there simply hasn't been bodies, like there hasn't been people filling a lot of the roles that already existed under the Obama administration, or just that have historically been filled. And uh, the priorities are not only shifted, but the fact that there are far less people focused on it in the last four years is also problematic. So I think that a huge challenge will also just be quite like, quite frankly, like getting people in the right jobs. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We've seen a a big decrease in capacity and there being enough people to do the job. This has been a particular problem at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, where we saw the Trump administration do buyouts to try to get people to retire early, things like that. And, um, you know, that combined with, I think many people working there were understandably demoralized by a lot of the actions under the Trump administration. And so, you know, we're looking at a huge deficit in people to do the job in the federal workforce. Anyway, there are many, many people close to retirement age. And so I think there were a lot of people who chose to leave. There's many people close to leaving uh, as they as they get close to retirement. And then, you know, that leaves this huge gap in expertise and capacity to do the work that's needed. And so what we really need is to get more people in there just to be able to do this job. And so I hope the Biden administration also prioritizes 
hiring, getting more expertise at agencies, getting, you know, new, younger, talented people into government service. Because I think, unfortunately, the Trump administration probably did some damage to enthusiasm about working for the federal government. I don't know, um, you know, how people are feeling that are just graduating now, but it seems like we should make sure that we can get new new people in, more diverse people in, really start to build out these programs because agencies were anyway sort of strapped for capacity and continue to be, and that problem was made worse in the last four years. So I think we need to get, get new people in to really make sure they can operate with all the things that they need to do and be able to do it in the timeframe that's needed. I could not agree more. I think it's interesting to think about morale in the federal government and enthusiasm because at the end of the day, it's a workplace. I think for a lot of Americans, you see it as this larger entity that's kind of, I mean, quite frankly, like the backbone of your society, the same way that people think about a lot of their local government functions and getting the water running and, you know, roads and drainage and things like that, things that aren't necessarily like sexy corporate America, I guess. But when you talk about the federal government being a workplace and the need for enthusiasm and people who care about the work that they're doing and getting young, diverse people in there, I think it's quite frankly, I think it's like a fascinating way to think about the federal government and how we need to really reimagine the federal government as not only an agency for people and for allowing our country to get where it needs to go in terms of climate action, but like we want it to be a positive place for people to experience their careers too, which is kind of you know, it's, I don't know, it's it's a way that I don't frequently think about the federal government, but it needs to be. Yeah, it's a good point that I think people don't think about the fact that it's it's real humans that are doing these things. And so, you know, when you, when you see a headline that's the Trump administration rolled back this rule, you know, that was something that someone devoted several years, many people devoted several years of their life to making sure that that happened and then were tasked with undoing it. And like that, I, I, I think, you know, amidst a lot of things happening. We, we haven't really had a focus on that, but I, I think that is, I imagine that doesn't, you, you're not feeling very positively about your job then. And I think too, you know, it's sort of a more fundamental level of being able to function in their job. I mean, it's not that like they need pizza parties to feel excited about their job, right? It's that like they need to feel like they're having a, a valuable role that the scientific experts are being listened to and evidence is being considered and that they're doing something worthwhile. So these are sort of fundamental workplace challenges. So I, when I talk to federal employees and, and scientists, you know, they're people that just want to they just want to make a difference. They just want to do the right thing, right? They don't have a political agenda. They, they're just thinking about, you know, how can I do my job and support the mission of this agency and do good works? I think it's really at a fundamental level. And a lot of that was shattered by the Trump administration. Agreed. And so unfortunate. The last question I want to ask you is more of a personal hopes and dreams type question. And I'd love to know if there is an agency that you are particularly excited about seeing in the new administration, seeing how they progress, perhaps in terms of their environmental protections or climate action, or is there is there an agency that you feel like isn't getting the recognition or the support that it needs going into the next four years? Oh, that's a fun one. I think 
Well, we talked a lot about EPA. I'm definitely very excited to see the new directions EPA goes. Uh, but an underplayed one that I think could be important and do a lot of great things under Biden is the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, or OSDP. Um, so this is an office within the White House. It was essentially empty under the Trump administration. They There just wasn't a lot of people there. He did appoint a director to that office, but he was sort of largely absent and hasn't had much of a public role that we as far as we know so it doesn't seem like they've done much um, but this office coordinates science and technology issues across the government it deals with the budget it does lots of things around science and so I think that office could do a lot under a Biden administration especially where we really do need to rebuild the science voice at agencies and advance uh, scientific integrity which took a major hit under uh, the Trump administration. My organization, the Union of Concerned Scientists, logged so far uh, 184, I think is the current number, of uh, attacks on science that happened under the Trump administration. So this is anything from you know them removing climate from an agency document to suppressing scientific reports to uh, preventing scientists from talking with the media, uh, things like that. And so that's a really big number. That's a lot of times that they have neglected or sidelined or suppressed science. And so that's a big task for the Biden team to think about, you know, how do you come back from that? How do you put in place structures that prevent that kind of thing from happening again? Um, and we know a lot about how they can do that because we've seen it happen. We know what works and what doesn't. We've looked at uh, was different at different agencies that had different kinds of policies in place. So we know all the things about, you know, this kind of thing needs to happen. You need this sort of um, leadership at the agency to guard against this. And so we can really run with that if there's good people at OSDP that can do it. That's like one thing I'm really excited to see them do. And I, I think that they'll think about that and, and have good opportunities there. So that's one to watch that might not otherwise be on your radar. Yeah, that's a cool one. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's also interesting. I mean, not interesting, but it's important to note that something you mentioned was budget and that all of these things take money. And if we're not prioritizing climate action, and environmental protection in the budget, it's not going to get done. And I think that perhaps there's this sense of, especially when we talk about things like environmental justice, that it's this social issue or an issue of culture that we need to change. And while that's true, we also need to properly fund it. And I think seeing an administration come in that's willing to put their money where their mouth is, is really hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the budget is like, you know, it's sort of boring to think about lines in the yeah. spreadsheet, but it is, you're right, that it's a huge um, opportunity. And it is one that's usually fairly protected from political interference. Even, even under Trump, he would talk about defunding things, but he can't really do that. And he couldn't really do that because it needs Congress. And so you you ended up getting like a lot of things that stayed in place. And so you can prioritize things and decide where funding goes. And that you're right, that's another huge component that we should be watching and be hopeful about. Well, Gretchen, thank you so, so much for joining me again today. This has been enlightening. I'm thrilled. I'm so excited to see these next four years roll out and quite frankly, like see the first hundred days. I'm really excited about the first hundred days and seeing what kind of things get prioritized and what kind of offices get filled. And I just, I feel really good. Like really, again, like not just hopeful, but fresh. Like it feels like 
I don't know, it feels like a new phase in American history. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I think there's so much potential and there's so, I mean, it, it's the boldest climate position of anyone who's ever been president. So I, I think that'll be um, a really cool opportunity. And I think lastly, I would just say, but it, it doesn't mean that we can all sit back, that they'll also need to be pushed and reminded to prioritize this issue. And it's going to be still a battle to get there, even even when um, they're in positions of power. So I would just put in a plug for staying engaged, staying active with um, contacting public officials and making sure that we can um, continue to push them to do things because they'll be they'll continue to be hurdles. But I think there's a lot of potential. Thank you. Well, thank you so, so much for that. Again, like I said, this has been fabulous and it's always so nice to chat with you. I hope you loved that conversation with Dr. Gretchen Goldman. Like I have said, I've enjoyed it so, so much just getting to know her, getting pumped up about the new administration's plans for climate action and for environmental justice. And I hope that this conversation gave you some clarity on your expectations and how you can be actively involved in what's coming up. So I encourage you to rate and review the show if you haven't already. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you want to see in the future. And I also encourage you to send it to a friend. This is an awesome episode for any of your environmentally conscious friends to get more familiar with what we can expect from climate policy and environmental policy moving forward. So thank you so, so much for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.